Jesus, we pray that you will do what we just sang, that you will lead your children to the place that you want us to go. We come before your word now, words perhaps that we have heard many times before, but we pray that you will open it up to us that we might see it in ways that we have never done before, and having encountered it, we will be changed. For we ask it in the name of Christ, and all of God's people said, Amen. Well, Merry Christmas to all of you. I welcome you to this last of our uh, Christmas Eve services. This is a very special one, and uh, I know that you know that. That's why you are here. We're going to be able to share in communion later on. Uh, I want to share this evening from the shortest and the most unusual of the Christmas stories that we find in the New Testament. The traditional Christmas story is really a compilation of two Gospels with which we are very familiar, Matthew and Luke. What you may not be aware of is that Luke really is the Christmas story from Mary's perspective. And as such, it has lots of poetry, lots of songs, beautiful lighting effects. Uh, Mary and Elizabeth sitting down over coffee to talk about their pregnancies together. I mean, it's something warm and lovely. It's kind of the hallmark channel of the Christmas story. Then, there, then there's Matthew. Matthew is the man of action. And so it's Matthew who has the, the wise men who are making this epic journey from the east to the west. It is Matthew who tells us about wicked King Herod who is plotting to kill the child. It is Matthew who tells about this breathtaking escape that the family makes to Egypt in order to save the child's life. So Matthew is kind of like the Spike TV version of the Christmas story. So when you combine these two, Hallmark and Spike, when you bring together Matthew and Luke, you have all of the elements of our traditional Christmas story with which you are so familiar. But there is one more Christmas story. It's tucked away in the Gospel of John. And John takes us back not to Bethlehem, but to the very foundation of time. He takes us back to eternity past. He uses a poetic nickname for the hero of his story. He calls him the Word And in the opening verses of his gospel, he makes some breathtaking claims about this superhero, the Word. Listen to it. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life. And that life was the light of man. You could hardly pack more into three sentences than John packs into those verses. It is a soaring, majestic description of this mysterious figure called the Word. We are told that the Word is God. We are told that the Word is eternal. He was in the beginning when the beginning began. We are told that the Word is the creator of all things. We are told that the Word is the giver of life and light. You cannot get much loftier than the things that are said by John about this remarkable Word. And then comes the shocker, the punchline. After all of that, we come to verse 14. And if there was a a musical score underscoring all of the reading of this passage, by the time you came to verse 14, there would be a dramatic pause and then a bum, 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 bum. Because now we come to the punchline. Verse 14 says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory as of the only Son of the Father. 
And there's John's Christmas story. That one verse. If you blinked, you missed it. The word became flesh. That's it. And suddenly we realize that John too was talking about the birth of Jesus. He's just doing so in a different way. Luke had angels and shepherds and mangers. Matthew had wise men and Herod and flights to Egypt. John has 15 words. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory. You may not realize it, but you are listening to the most astonishing words that were ever written. You may not realize it because you've heard it so many times that you've become inured to it. You may not realize it because you're not that familiar with the Bible and don't realize it. But I'm just telling you, you are listening to the most astonishing claims ever made. The most astonishing words ever written. And so it deserves to, for a, a closer look. First of all, John tells us that when we look at Jesus, we are looking at the glory of God. Glory is a very churchy word. It's a very religious word. It's a very Christmassy word. You can't have Christmas without the word glory. When the angels speak to the shepherds near Bethlehem, we are told that the glory of the Lord shone around about them. When the angels filled the skies over Bethlehem, they sang glory to God in the highest. So there's a lot of glory in Christmas. But we don't use the word. When was the last time you used the word glory in a sentence? So we really don't understand what a big deal it is to say that when we see Jesus, we are looking upon the glory of God. So I want to help you understand that. I've got an illustration for you. What is this? What is it? It's a welder's mask. How many of you have ever arc welded before? I see a few of you. I have. It's really quite fun, isn't it? But there's one rule about arc welding. You never, ever, 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 what? You never look at the arc. You never look at the light. Not with your naked eye. If you do, it will damage your cornea. It's called arc eye. How creative. And that's what the mask is for. Because the human eye is not made to gaze upon such brilliance. And until that first Christmas Eve, that's what it was like for a human to look upon God. Throughout the Old Testament, God is represented as glorious, as holy, as other, as brilliant, as perfect. No human could look upon the face of God, far less draw near Him, because of His glory. It's like looking into the welder's ark. Mere humans could not do it. And for that reason... In the Old Testament, God often seems distant, remote, unknowable, perhaps even harsh or judgmental. Maybe that's the way you view God. Most of you are here this service, I suspect, because this is the service you wanted to be at. You wanted to be here for communion. This is home. But there might be some of you who are here just to be a sport, just to go along with the family. And the fact of the matter is you're often not in church. And maybe one of the reasons is this image of God. You have a view of God who is distant. He may be holy, whatever that means. He may be awesome, whatever that means. But he is entirely irrelevant too because he's so far away from you. And if that describes your view of God, have I got a Christmas gift for you? Because of Jesus, John says, we can dump this mask. Because of Jesus, the God that was distant, far off, aloof, suddenly has come close to us. 
the God who was unattainable, is near us. We can see his glory. So how did that happen? John puts it simply, the word became flesh. And you might say, come on. You you just described the word as as God, as eternal, as creator, as life giver, as light giver. How does something that super, that glorious, how does something like that put on human flesh? How is it possible? My daughter, who is uh, also a pastor in our denomination, was recently on a flight back to Istanbul, Turkey. And she sat with a Muslim man named Osman. It's a long flight to Turkey, and so they had lots of opportunity to talk. And pretty soon, predictably, the conversation made its way to religion. And Osman said very kindly, but very seriously, how can you Christians believe that God would have a son and become a human being? Allah is all-powerful and glorious. He would not do such a thing. Really? But what if he did? What if John's telling the truth? What if everything that is described to us in the gospel is in fact reality that God did in fact put on human flesh? The all-powerful God came to us. And that's not even the half of it. Listen to the rest of the punchline. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. That's really a crummy translation. It's weak Because the Greek actually says this, the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. Doesn't exactly roll off the tongue, but it's a lot richer. What is the tabernacle? It was the tent in the Old Testament where God would meet with Moses. And every time the Israelites moved from one place to another, they would pack up their, their tabernacle and schlep it along to the next site. And then they would unfold it and set it up. It was always the first thing set up. Why? Because this was where God met with his people. This tent allowed God to be with his people even in their wanderings. So when John says that the word became flesh and tabernacled with us, what he's really saying is that the divine, eternal, creator, giver of life, And light put on human flesh and did this. Pitched his tent in our midst. That's what the Greek word literally means. Only he pitched it better than I did. (laughs) Trust me, that's a tent. It works up there. (laughs) Thank you, Ellis. It's this... It would have been so dramatic if it had worked. But <laughs> Now, why would God want to do such a thing? Why would an almighty, all-powerful, glorious God want to do such a thing, put on human flesh and pitch his tent in our midst? Because he wanted a relationship with us. Because he wanted to hang out with us. He wanted to be with us even in our wanderings. And even more astoundingly, he wanted us to be his kids. 
That's another part of this gospel. In verse 12, it says, But to all who received him, who believed in his name, to all who received Jesus and believed in his name, to them he gave the right to become children of God. Now think about that for a moment. Wrap your head around that. Not only now are we able to look upon the glory of God, not only is he able to draw near to us, now in Jesus we have been given the right to become the king's kids. His sons, his daughters. We live in an entitled age, don't we? We know what our rights are and we cling ferociously to them. And yet sometimes we don't realize the greatest right that we have available to us. God himself has given you the right to become his child. He never forces it, but he offers it. The right to become God's kids. Would you claim that right? Because that is the ultimate entitlement. I want to show you a picture that some of you might remember. It is an iconic picture from the presidency of uh, John F. Kennedy. You remember this? Remember this picture? Who is that underneath the desk? John John. This was JFK's son playing under the desk as Kennedy was going about the business of the country. Now, it is a pretty precious uh, picture. I want to ask you this. Who might have the right to play under the desk of the president? I mean, Vice President Johnson was the second most powerful man in the world. Do we see him up there? No. It was only the son. It was only the child who had that kind of access to the father. This is what your heavenly father longs to give you. No matter how far off you are, no matter how much you have misbehaved, no matter how ashamed you are of the things that you have done, no matter how fearful you are of a punitive God, when Jesus pitched his tent in our neighborhood, it was our father's way of saying, I love you. I want a relationship with you. I want you to be my child, my son, my daughter. Who wouldn't want that? So then what's the catch? Is it that we have to impress God, that we have to work really hard and be good, come up to a certain level so that we pass muster? Do we have to check off all of the religious boxes in order to qualify for God's approval and affection? Nope. John simply says, believe in Jesus. Believe in Jesus, he says. And not just up here, but in here. Sincerely, believe in Jesus. Believe that Jesus really is God in the flesh come to visit us. Believe that Jesus really can forgive us of everything that makes us most ashamed. Believe that Jesus really can give us a different perspective on life that makes more sense than the rat race that is trying to swallow us up. Believe that Jesus really can give you a heart that cares more for others than it does for yourself. John says, if you believe in Jesus that way, God gives you the right to become his children. That's what Christmas Eve is really all about. I mean, it's about candles. It's about greenery. It's about beautiful music. It's about all of that loveliness. But at the heart of it, it is this. It is about God loving you, drawing near to you, God inviting you to believe in his son so that he might make you one of his kids. Would you close your eyes for a moment, please? Every one of you, even if you're not a prayer, as a courtesy, just close your eyes. 
Every time we have an event like this, there are people who show up almost surprised to have shown up. They're here. And, and they were perhaps felt a little dragged here or obligated to be here. And yet they walk in and they hear the word like they've never heard it before. They suddenly realize Jesus is more than just a baby in a manger and it's a, more than a cute little ch- children's story. But they begin to wonder, could this be true? Are you one of those people tonight? As you listen to this for the first time, does it ring in your heart? Do you find yourself saying, could this be true? That if I believe in Jesus, not like a theologian, not like a pastor, just if I believe simply that this is true about Jesus, could it be true that God would welcome me as his child? Who wouldn't want that? Is your life really so squared away that you couldn't use the the touch of the Father who created you in the first place? Is your life really so squared away that you wouldn't welcome the, the warmth and the love of your creator? If you long for that, it, it would be the greatest Christmas gift you'd ever give yourself. If you long for that, I invite you to just repeat a prayer after me. Dear God, thank you that you love me. I'm surprised. Thank you that you sent your son. I'm surprised. But I believe in him. I don't know all that I believe, but I believe that what I'm hearing is true. And I long to be your child. And so I received the gift of Jesus. In my head, in my heart, I received that gift. Would you make me your son? Would you make me your daughter? And would you guide me as I begin this journey of life where I now belong to you in a way that I've never did before? In Jesus' name. Keep your heads bowed, please, and your eyes closed. I want to just ask, would you take the courageous step, if you prayed that prayer, would you take the courageous step of raising your hand and, and declaring it just to me? But would you raise your hand if you prayed that prayer and said, I want to be a child of God. I want to know him in that way. Raise your hand. I see your hand. Thank you. Keep it up. I see it. I see your hand. I see it. I see it over here to my left. I see you up in the balcony. I see you. This is wonderful. I see you in the middle in the balcony. I see you to the right. God, I, I thank you for these who have said, I, I want to know you. And I pray for them right now. You know them. I pray that this would be a true and genuine journey of faith that will begin this night when they suddenly realize that in Christ they've been invited to be your children. Would you walk with them, strengthen them, call them to yourself and assure them of of their, their, their relationship, their position with you as the king's kids. For we pray through Christ our Lord. This is a pretty cool way to go into communion because I'll bet I saw 12 or 15 people who raised their hand up and said, I want to follow Jesus. I want to be the child of the king. And the, the great thing, this, this is his meal. This is the meal of the, of the family of God. So if you're a member, you're welcome. If you love Jesus, you're welcome. 
If you believe in Jesus, you are welcome. This is his meal. And so I want you to listen to the words that were spoken that night over this meal, this supper that we call the last one. The Lord Jesus on the night in which he was betrayed, he took bread and he blessed it and he broke it and he gave it to his disciples, his followers, and said, this is my body, which is going to be broken, battered for you. I'm doing this for you and I want you, when you do this, to remember me. And in the same way, after supper, he took a cup, wine, simple wine, He said, but now this wine means something else. It's a sign of a new agreement, a new covenant. The covenant of my blood which will be poured out and which will cover your sin forever. Jesus said, as often as you eat this and drink this, you proclaim that you're my children, my disciples, until the day I come back for all of you. And so that's what we do this night to close out this Christmas Eve series of celebrations, you have come to the Supper of the, of the Lamb. And I invite you to prepare your hearts, if you love Christ, if you have received him, to be your Lord, your Savior, your friend, then this is your table. Let us pray. Holy God, would you set aside these very common elements to a holy purpose? By your Spirit, would you make them for us the body and blood of Christ, that in the partaking of them, our souls might be nourished. Lamb of God, who takes away all the sins of the world, have mercy upon us and grant us your peace. And Lord, I especially pray for those who lifted their hand up for whom this night meant a next step of faith. As they receive the elements tonight, God, may they do so in the assurance and in the joy that because they believe in your son, they are now your kids. May they delight in this feast. In Jesus' name, amen.